Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you? Moderately brilliant. What do you want to talk about today? Well, today, James, at your request, we're following on the theme of coagulase positive cocci. All right, so coagulase negative staphylococci? Coagulase negative staphylococci. So we've talked about the two big families of, of gram-positive cocci so far, and the completionist in me wants to finish this off. So we've got streptococci, which we're not going to talk about today, uh, staphylococci, the other big uh, group, and they are divided generally into staph aureus, uh, which is coagulase positive staph, and coagulase negative staphylococci, which are almost every other staphylococcal species that you encounter. There are exceptions that we'll get into. Um, we'll address them in time. So as a brief reminder, uh, gram-positive Staphylococci are gram-positive cocci, they're gram-stain-positive, they are circular in shape, and they tend to grow in clusters because of their tendency to, when they replicate, divide in three planes, producing this kind of bundle of grapes appearance under the microscope. And at this point, you can't really tell between the two of them, between Staph aureus and any other staphylococcal species. You just have... Go ahead. To add on, I think, you know, most people's experience of coagulase negative staph clinically will be when uh, you get a phone call from the microbiologist and it says we've got a positive blood culture we've got um, a gram stain and we're seeing gram positive cocci in clusters like you're saying there James and then it's followed up by this statement which uh, whoever's worked in microbiology will have the way that they say it because they've said it so many times which is we cannot differentiate staphylococcus aureus which is generally pathogenic from coagulase negative staphylococci, which are often contaminant, but can be a cause of infection in, and then you would list some causes. Um, thankfully, the rise of the electronic patient record, you can just look for the patient's note before you phone. So you generally can tell if, if it's going to be pathogenic, if it's a coagulase negative staphylococcus, which we'll come on to. Um, but I think that's probably most clinicians experience of, coagulase negative staff is that phone call and it's just this term that we never really drill down into it unless it's quite specific situations which we'll come on to yeah i mean even when i was a um a student i i i sort of because i was interested i learned about the enzymes that you would use to identify sort of catalase to tell between strep and staff and coagulase to tell between staph aureus and coagulase negative staffs but I kind of stopped at that level. And whenever I saw staphylococcus and then something that wasn't aureus, I just sort of assumed that that was a coagulase negative staph and that I could ignore it. And for the most part, that's sort of true. And if you're you know, a, a medical student or an FY and you kind of stop at that level, you probably know enough to be getting on with. And these you know, are notable for not being particularly pathogenic or important. They're important in certain situations and they're important microbiologically sometimes, uh, but they're really something that kind of staph aureus, it's good to know about strep. They're good to know about 
Coagulase negative staffs, telling between them and learning about all their individual kind of foibles and antibiograms, that falls pretty firmly within the purview of infectious disease and microbiology. It sounds like, Jamie, if you're interested to that degree as a student in microbiology, maybe you, you've missed a trick and you should be, you should be training to be a microbiologist. Ah, uh, no, no, no. I like the outdoors. <laughs> um, so what we're going to do is we're going to go through what they are, what they do, how they're classified, and how to kill them, as we have done previously. What are they? What are they? So as a brief reminder for what staphylococci are, they are gram-positive cocci. Um, they are catalase positive uh, to differentiate from streptococci, which are catalase negative, and they are um, then further identified by the presence or absence of coagulase. Uh, so coagulase positive would be staph aureus, and coagulase negative is uh, this group called coagulase negative staphylococci. They are quite a heterogeneous group. They tend to be DNAs negative or DNAs variable, which is another enzyme that's used to identify some organisms. And generally speaking, in smaller labs, they will be identified with um, coagulase. If they're negative, they will be ignored. Or if further identification is required, they will be identified using a machine called a Molotov which I think we should spend an episode sort of explaining our bacterial diagnostic methods that we use that are common in the lab. Amoldatov essentially is a electronic nose which sniffs zapped RNA and spits out a number saying, I think that this organism is uh, what you've got here on this plate. We'll go into no more detail than that. I can see. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing, uh, but it takes a bit more. Uh, to explain, then I've got time here. But anyway, uh, then then you've got stuff which looks at different biochemical uh, enzymes or stub traits or the ability to metabolize things, uh, chemicals, to, the ability to metabolize chemicals. And uh, there are automated machines that can do this. The Vitec uh, is one such machine made by Biomario. That's what we use in Scotland. Uh, or there are kind of automated sort of testing strips where you uh, add a, a sample of the uh, organism to a bunch of little sort of windows, each of which contain a little chemical. And depending on the various color changes, you can sort of plug them into a website and it'll spit out a number or, or a probability that you've grown Staph epidermidis or Staph hemolyticus, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the three big ways of identifying to species level. But because they're so indolent, it's very rarely required. There are some circumstances where you would always want to look for it. Like if you grow from a sterile site or you grow from successive blood cultures, which would indicate that you've got endocarditis. Those are situations in which you would want to identify to species level. Uh, but generally speaking, we don't really do it because they're not that important. Yeah. They're, they're of low pathogenicity overall. Um, so we've talked there about what they are, uh, what they do. Uh, so we've hinted at the fact that they're generally low pathogenicity as in they don't, they don't cause severe infections. They lack, or at least most of them lack, the virulence factors that make successful pathogens. So they're less likely to invade tissue, to uh, cause uh, cell death, to evade the immune response, to you know adhere to different parts of the body. They 
do cause problems, however, when part of your innate response is impaired. And um, in particular, mm -hmm. the main thing we would worry about is if there's prosthetic material. Um, and so by that, that can be anything, anything from a joint replacement to a heart valve, uh, to a permanent pacemaker, cardiac pacemaker, a ventricular access device in the brain, uh, metal work anywhere in the body, long lines, uh, sort of central lines or Hickman lines, um, to be more specific. Uh, this is when it becomes a problem because the, although they're not very good at adhering to say normal tissue, normal heart valves, so they can do it, you're not, not, not going to tend to see these causing uh, say septic arthritis but if you're in a situation where you know the normal skin barrier has been disrupted and these organisms generally where they live is on the skin uh, along with staph aureus you know these are normal constituent of your skin flora uh, they get in from you know you've got an incision when you're getting your hip operation done you know even a small number of organisms getting in getting into the hip joint and um, they can set up a shop there and cause quite quite an indolent, a sort of low pathogenicity, uh, slow burning infection, which over time can cause problems. And you can contrast that prosthetic joint infection with that caused by, say, staph aureus, which is generally pretty acute in the first couple of weeks to months. You know, you've had your operation, you then get unwell with you know, pain, fever, redness, swelling, you might get discharged from the joint. Whereas if you say get a coagulase negative staphylococcus infection in the joint, it's going to be quite a bit further down the line. So months, potentially even years later that you're getting problems and it might not present so typically uh, mm. with pain, swelling, erythema. You might see more like, you know, loosening of the um, prosthesis within the joint or you might see, you know, just slight pain. And it, it can be quite hard to diagnose and I think often things get dismissed uh, so you'll see that people saying oh well it can't be a prosthetic joint infection because there's a lack of these signs that we look for the redness the swelling the pain fever rise in inflammatory markers etc etc so because I think that's a common theme actually in infection when you get these organisms that don't make people really sick and sometimes people don't think it's an infection uh, but it's just because what we see people becoming unwell from infection is really to do with a lot of the time virulence factors and stimulation of the immune response through things like super antigens. And often with these being prosthetic infections, they need quite long courses of treatment to overcome the, the biofilms and they can be quite complicated infections to treat. So although they're not pathogenic, it can actually cause a lot of morbidity. You know, if you've got an infected joint, there's a big operation to remove and replace that. You know, although they're not going to cause people to become acutely unwell, it, it, they're a really big problem. Um, so I think that's really what they do. You know, joint infections from prosthetic material, pacemaker infections, infective endocarditis, particularly on uh, prosthetic valves like metallic valves, and infection in long lines. Yeah, the coagulase negative staffs, they're not very good at very much, but one thing they are good at is making biofilm. And the uh, when they colonize plastic or metal, they tend to stay there until they're removed. Mm. The other sort of circumstance in which case, in which you would encounter them is if the patient's immune defenses were compromised. So mm. hematology, oncology patients or people on large amounts of immunosuppression, occasionally you can get 
opportunistic confession with Coagulay's negative stuff for Cockeye. But that that's kind of uncommon and not seen very much. Usually they need a bit of plastic or metal to, uh, to stick to, or they've been introduced into a sterile site, as with the joint infection example that Callum just gave. On that note, there's a sort of special case to think about in terms of neonates, so, you know, very young infants just after birth, the first 28 days of life. There is some reports of Quigley's negative staph causing more significant infections, such as Staphylococcus capitis is one um, that Mm. is particularly reported um, and has led to outbreaks within uh, neonatal units. So we're, we're giving general... Uh, principles but it's always worth thinking about what the epidemiology is and the the patient group that you're dealing with should we move on to how they're classified and we'll talk a bit more about individual ones this is where it gets a bit more tricky i'd say because we've been saying you know staph aureus is positive and coagulase negative staph are the other ones um and now we're going to tell you it's not quite simple as that yeah, I hate this. So there are some coagulase positive, coagulase negative staffs uh, that you uh, should know about. Again, really, if you, just if you're an infection specialist, particularly microbiology, because they're they're mimics of staph aureus, obviously. Now, uh, I'll start by saying that there are what's what's termed animal versions of staph aureus. So they're st- they're related to staph aureus closely phylogenetically, and they just happen to have a host animal that's, that's slightly different. So staph intermediate is the canine uh, staph aureus, staph delphini, which was originally cultured in, in dolphins, staph pseudintermediate, which again, I think is a, a canine uh, variant. And then there's staph hyacus, which is coagulase variable, but not always coagulase positive. So there's those, they're, they're kind of non-staph aureus. And so usually they're kind of lumped in with uh, with coagulase negative staph just because they're not staph aureus, but they are occasionally coagulase positive, or even with staph intermediate, commonly coagulase positive. But then there are other ones which can sometimes be coagulase positive. And here we have to talk a little bit about what the proteins and chemicals are which cause the coagulase effects. There's two big ones that are present in staph aureus. One is called protein A and the other is called clumping factor. And staph aureus typically possesses both of them. But the clumping factor is also present on a couple of other species, Staphylococcus schleiferi and Staphylococcus lugdunensis. Cam, do you want to say anything more about Staph lugdunensis? Yes. It slides coagulase positive, tubes coagulase negative. But the important thing to mention about it is that it has quite a few of the virulence factors that Staphylococcus aureus has. Uh, some of these intrinsic factors that allowed it to in- invade tissue and adhere to different tissues, uh, which means that it can cause more pathogenicity than some of the truly coagulase negative staphylococci. So it can cause skin soft tissue infections, it can cause abscesses, it can cause more invasive infections. So it's something, it's probably one of the few ones that is worth at least having awareness of. And you sort of think about it as staphylococcus aureus light. It's not on the same level, but if you get a patient who's got a infected ulcer or so on and you grow staphylococcus lugdunensis, it's an important one to be aware of treating. And often in the laboratory, 
for example, if there's a blood culture and we've got an organism that we think is probably a quagley's negative staph, if they if we rule out staph aureus, we probably still want to know if it's staphylococcus lugdunensis because we would manage that clinically different. There's a sort of higher risk that it's causing infection. Mm, yeah, yeah. Good point. Staph lugdunensis in particular, there, there are two different formulations of the coagulase staph. There's a slide one and there's a, a sort of tube uh, version of it. And staph lugdunensis doesn't produce free coagulase. It only has bound coagulases and bound to the surface of the cell. So it will test slide positive, but be tube negative. And I think the underlying reasoning for this is that the uh, the tube version of the coagulase test, the coagulase needs to disseminate throughout the tube in order to create the coagulation effect. And of course, if all of your coagulase is bound onto the cell surface, that can't happen. Yeah. It's historically more than anything an important test. We do on occasion use it in the laboratory, but in general, now that the Molditoff is there and essentially within five minutes, you can have a colony and it will tell you to a high degree of accuracy what it is. Mm. It's been largely replaced. We still do use a slide coagulase, mainly from samples from non-sterile sites. So if you've got blood culture and you've got a gram-positive caucus, it's going in the Molditoff. You know, you want to know mm. what it is regardless of it of its coagulase status. But say it's, you know, a, a non-sterile, like a swab or a sputum or something like that, then you're you're gonna want to do the coagulase test because you know doing the Molditoff and over and over again is quite expensive and time consuming. Mm. I mean, it is quite efficient, though, and, and people might be thinking, like, why, why if the Molotov's so great, are we bothering to talk about all this stuff at all? Well, two reasons. One, it will turn up in the exam if you're doing the microbiology and ID exams. But two, there are plenty of places in the world where they don't have access to a Molotov, and they're still doing things the old-fashioned way, in quotes, the real microbiology way, some of the consultants we work with would say. And the advantage of you know coagulase for example is that it it requires virtually no technical skill and can be done anywhere in the world you know you can do it in a hut in the middle of the desert if you wanted to as long as you've got quality controls yeah as long as you've got qc obviously <laughs> and then there are another couple of um things that are very occasionally but usually not coagulase positive and that would be staph hominis and staph hemolyticus uh, but let's move on to the actual true coagulase negative staphylococci, the ones that, that basically never are, are coagulase positive. I'm going to divide these into novobiosin sensitive and resistant organisms. Uh, novobiosin is a, is a lab antibiotic that you can't use in humans for toxicity reasons. And there is one coagulase negative staph that is intrinsically resistant to it in that staph saprophyticus. And it's important because it is a infrequent but not uncommon cause of UTIs in young women. And usually um, treatment of UTIs in females is for three days with appropriate antibiotics, but for staph saprophyticus, you have to uh, treat them for seven days. Hmm. And there are a few really kind of niche species which occasionally are novobiosin resistant or you need to differentiate from staph saprophyticus too and that's staph conii, sciuri and xylosis. And then the novobiosin sensitive 
coagulase negative staphs are dominated by the staph epidermidis group, which is the most the, the commonest group of organisms of, of, of species that, that cause disease, and that they're composed of staph epidermidis, hominis, hemolyticus, capitis, varnari, and simulans. And then the other organisms that are not in that group are capri, auricularis, passuri, and sacroliticus. Again, you do not need to memorize any of that. And with a few exceptions, these can all be kind of lumped into the coagulase negative staph group. So what is important to, to remember? I think when you're thinking about the coagulase negative staphs, you need to think about when you would want to treat them and what you would want to treat them with. So when you would want to treat them is, again, for F1s and F2s and medical students, it's very obvious. You want to treat them when a microbiologist or infectious disease doctor tells that you that you have to. And we will tell you that you have to in circumstances like we've just described, uh, nosocomial acquired uh, infections of sterile sites like endocarditis or joints or immunocompromised patients or the presence of colonization of plastic or metal with the coagulase negative staph. Those are the big things. But then we, we sort of run into a problem here, which is that there are antibiotic resistance factors that we need to think about. So we're, we're sort of like, merging into, into how to kill them now. But I'll, I'll start by saying that the, there are a couple of resistance mechanisms that most coagulase neg staphs have. So beta-lactams usually don't work. They, about 90%, possess a penicillin. It's called Blasi. It's present in most staph aureus these days as well, which means that penicillins are out. Uh, but also about 80% of them possess MEC-A, which is the gene behind PBP or penicillin binding protein 2A, which is the, the thing that makes MRSA resistant to flucloxacillin or cloxacillin or, uh, or any of those things. Well, about 80% of coagulase negative staphs also possess that gene. So really, by and large, um, using beta-lactams to treat coagulase negative staph patients is occasionally done if you've got an antibiogram that says that you can do it. But usually um, the first line treatment of choice is glycopeptides. So vancomycin, tycoplanin. Yeah, so um, the resistance mechanism against glycopeptide antibiotics is, is again, similar to Staph aureus, usually encoded by VAN-A uh, gene, uh, which uh, you commonly find in enterococci, um, but can mm. be found in the coagulase negative staph. So the VAN-A gene, which leads to a change in the, the terminal end of the peptidoglycan, uh, so the vancomycin can't bind to it. Other mechanism resistance in the coagulase negative staph can be uh, peptidoglycan hyperproduction. Uh, and there's some, you know, we talk about coagulase negative staph, it's such a huge group. So one example would be Staphylococcus hemolyticus, which is commonly resistant to glycopeptides. And I think mm. certainly... The experience in Scotland is that uh, we're quite fortunate that Staph aureus locally is sensitive to a wide range of antibiotics, and we don't tend to see that much multi-drug resistance unless it's, say, a community-acquired MRSA with you know, plasmids with other resistance on it, which is uh, we see but infrequently. Conversely, with the coagulase negative staphylococci, and as James saying, they're nosocomially acquired usually, so they're acquired in the hospital healthcare environment. Uh, because of that, these are organisms that you know are 
in and around a healthcare environment, there's lots of antibiotics in the environment. So, you know, when you give someone, you know, an infusion of some sort of antimicrobial that comes out in your urine and your stool, it's going to be in the sewage, it's going to be in the room. And so these organisms, you know, say you go in for an operation and you, there's a quite distinctive staff in the environment, and then they tend to have a lot more resistance. You're going to get more resistant organisms in a hospital, nosocomial, healthcare associated setting. Hmm. Uh, and in terms of other antimicrobials that you can use, say, say, I mean, you can't use, usually can't use beta latam, say that glycopeptides are unsuitable for, you know, whatever reason. Uh, you can use uh, things like uh, cotramoxazole, you can use macrolides, um, you can usually use gentamicin as well. Gentamicin has some anti-staphylococcal activity, and that's not limited to staph aureus. You can use daptamicin, uh, and you can use linezolid. Uh, these are kind of not ones that you would normally want to use without permission from an infection specialist, and you would much prefer to actually get an antibiogram and then see what the organism is resistant to. But that's the kind of examples of the kinds of things that we can use to treat um, coagulase negative staph infections if we need to. The one thing that I will sort of flag up is as well as being resistant to glycopeptides, staph hemolyticus is normally resistant to gentamicin and macrolides too. So it's, it's got a, a worse resistance profile compared to the other coagulase negs uh, that it's lumped in with. Uh, and returning back to Staph saprophyticus, that's the one that causes UTIs in, in young women, you can uh, treat that with seven days worth of things like trimethoprim, nitifurantoin, uh, or if you need to, you can use a quinolone uh, pretty easily. The, these drugs get into good concentrations in the urine, and the organism is usually uh, susceptible to these. And as a last kind of final qualifier that I think we should put at the end of almost every episode, really, is particularly when you've got a colonized prosthetic area, is to try and get source control. And I think this is particularly important in line infections. Source control. So where is the infection and removing the source of that infection? And given that we're talking a lot in this episode about prosthetic infections, that is doubly important here. And often, for example, if you've got a line infection, like a central line, if you just remove the line, that's it sorted. You know, these aren't organisms that are very pathogenic. So you, know, you often see you've got a central line infection, you've grown, say, Staphylococcus epidermidis, which is of the coagulase negative staph, the one that you most commonly see causing infection, you remove the line, usually the patient gets better. There are situations where that's more difficult. So say you've got a, a longer uh, surgically inserted central line like a Hickman, a prosthetic heart valve or a joint and the patient's not fit for replacement, which is quite a, a big endeavor, then you're, you're going to need to target both killing the bacteria with antibiotics, preferably the least toxic ones, usually something like a glycopeptide for long, long durations. The other thing that you can try is targeting the biofilm. So there's an antibiotic called rifampicin, which essentially has some effects on protein synthesis and is thought to invade biofilms and, and cause 
you know, interrupt the process by which bacteria produce biofilms, which are really a whole topic in themselves. You know, the key thing when you've got a prosthetic infection is getting the source control and if you can't, and then doing everything you can to, to try and sterilize it, but it's very difficult to do. Yeah. I mean, uh, I will say that for sterilizing lines, I'm thinking particularly people that have got Hitman lines or tunneled lines in hematology and oncology for long-term delivery of chemotherapy, coagulase negative staph are actually one of the few organisms that you can actually get rid of. Yeah. Anything more aggressive like staph aureus or you know, a, a fungal colonization of the line, you can try and cure that with antimicrobials but the recurrence rates are very high and usually you end up just having to pull the line a few weeks later. Uh, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's a, that's a good summary. I think it's interesting to say that as well, that there's the recurrence with staph aureus, but you also see it with the coagulase negative staph. But I sometimes think that we maybe miss it a bit because it can be kind of subclinical, you know, there's just, they don't get that sort of typical, you, if you get a recurrent staph aureus line infection, you know about it. It's red, it's hot, mm. it's pus, the patient's unwell. Staphylococcus epidermidis, for example, you know, there might be very slight erythema or tenderness, and there might not be any at all. Uh, they mm. might just get very slight, mild fevers. So, you know, I wonder how much we actually get rid of with these infections uh, truly and how much we just suppress it enough to not be a problem. Maybe. But then is subclinical infection all that important? Yes, that's a good point. <laughs> Who knows? That brings us to the end of our discussion. We've talked about the Quigley's negative staff and some that are in the middle between Quigley's positive and negative and some that are truly should really be in a Quigley's positive staff um, episode, but it's, it's slightly easier to lump them into Staphylococcus aureus and not Staphylococcus aureus. So we've talked about what they are, what they do, how they're classified, and how to kill them. In terms of what the um, new doctors uh, need to know, these usually can be dismissed as uh, skin contaminants, and there are few circumstances in which they can really cause active disease. Sometimes that's because of the species, so Staphylococcus or... Um, staph intermediates uh, can cause in infections, particularly in canine bites. Uh, and then there are some organisms which, if they are getting into a sterile site, can be difficult to deal with because of antibiogram, uh, anti antimicrobial resistant issues, and thinking of staph hemolyticus being resistant to vancomycin, which is our first line uh, treatment of choice. Um, but ideally, your microbiologist or infectious disease specialist should be guiding you. If you feel that you require, if these things require treatment, uh, you should be getting in contact with us and we'll advise you accordingly. Well, that wraps us up uh, for today. We've talked about Quigley's negative and negative-ish staphylococci. Any comments, questions or feedback, you can send them to idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. I've been Callum. I've been Jane. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Infectious Diseases Insights of Two Specialists podcast.